This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A new campaign for skier safety was born out of a personal tragedy. On Christmas Eve six years ago, the Johnson family went to enjoy a local day on the ski hill. At one point, Kelly Johnson took her five-year-old daughter Elise down a challenging run, and they stopped partway down to adjust Elise's ski. Then a snowboarder, likely traveling more than 40 miles an hour, slammed into them. He and Elise both died. Now the Johnsons are working with ski areas in Colorado and elsewhere to help other skiers, quote, ride another day. Their campaign launched last week in Steamboat Springs. I spoke with them when they were there to unveil it. Kelly Chauncey, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Kelly, you suffered a spinal injury and a traumatic brain injury in the collision, which happened on a hill near Casper, Wyoming. You spent several weeks in a coma and then in rehab. What do you remember about that day? I remember going up the chairlift with her. And we're discussing which run we wanted to go on. And the run that's almost directly right under the chairlift is called Dreadnought. And that's what she said she wanted to do. And I remember starting out that run with her. She was actually doing so well. I actually was having her follow me. And I only remember that I, I stopped to help Elise get her ski back on. That that was it. I, I mean, I remember up to that point. But I never saw the snowboarder coming. I never looked up to to see him, it was, that is not part of my memory. I think it all happened so fast that even if I probably would have looked up, it would have been too late. Chauncey, what about you? What do you remember about that day? It was just, it was a nice Christmas day, Christmas Eve, excuse me. And uh, the sun was shining and uh, Kelly and Elise took off. And I just remember time going by a little bit longer than I was expecting before I heard back from him. We usually check in pretty regularly with each other. And uh, shortly after that, one of our good friends came running up the parking lot and had told me that there'd been an accident. They thought that uh, my girls were involved and I needed to get to the ski patrol station as quickly as I could. So uh, my most vivid memories of those moments were just hearing that there were three skiers down. Uh, only one had a pulse. Um, that's forever imprinted on my mind and my my heart. And um, the first person that they brought up was my daughter, Elise. One of my good friends that we were skiing with there uh, was actually in his residency. He's a doctor there, and he was the one actually performing uh, CPR on my daughter. And uh, I live with the the memories really every day. I would say that with time, it's getting at least a little bit better that I don't have the memories or or flashbacks, if you will, on such a frequent basis. But when they do come, when something triggers that, which these conversations do a little bit, the intensity is still pretty much the same. Uh, my mind goes back to that day and to those events uh, pretty much as if it was happening. Um, shortly after they had brought Elise up, they had brought the, the snowboarder to the top of the mountain and and then shortly after that, Kelly was was brought up. They loaded Kelly into a, the Life Flight helicopter and took off. Um, just a, just after that, a young man came up to me with a helmet and said, I think this is your daughter's helmet. And uh, I looked at it, and it, it was in really bad shape. Chauncey and, and, and Kelly, I, I hear the emotion in your voice, and I know this is something that, that is difficult Kelly, you're mostly recovered. Right side of your body still has weakness. Um, you have some physical issues, but you're essentially recovered now. Is that right? Yes. 
And I understand you used money from a settlement related to the collision to launch this public education campaign with the National Ski Areas Association. It's meant you've had to relive this tragedy in order to work on the campaign. Uh, Why do you want to put your energy and money into this? I just feel like I'm thankful that this all took six years to get up and going because now I I'm ready to allow and to admit that something good can come from something that was so painful for me, making something good out of something that was, that is so tragic. Are there too many distractions for skiers? And is that a concern for you? I think that there's beginning to be too many distractions for for skiers as far as having all this technology on your phone or to be able to see exactly how fast you're going and then try and beat that and not being responsible enough to have a, a spotter or to to make sure that the whole trail that you're planning on going down is is clear and safe. I think that some of these um, technologies and everything are, are wonderful and it can really promote and um, encourage the sport to grow. However, I do think that it can be a distraction and We just need to learn how to rein it all in and and do it safely. The tagline of your campaign, Chauncey, is safe skiing saves lives. That's on a poster which shows a snow angel in the words, she was five, you were doing 50. The National Ski Areas Association will give that to ski areas, including in Colorado, and will release a video that you made with a boulder company called Active Interest Media. And it starts with your home videos of a young uh, Elise on skis. Our life will forever be divided into two sections. Our life before the accident and now our life after the accident. Okay, come to dad. Why was it important to you that skiers and snowboarders hear the emotional parts of your story, Chauncey? For me, it's important because... I think up until now, for the most part in the ski industry, you have a lot of still pictures and signage that reminds us to be safe. But I don't know that to this point uh, that there's been a specific campaign that actually brings the reality of what happens when things go wrong to light. And so you do put yourself definitely in a very vulnerable position to open yourself up and share your story. But to be able to get people's attention and help them look at this little girl, my daughter, the young man that was riding his snowboard. This could be your your brother. It could be your daughter. It could be your sister. It could be your mom. I think just resonates at a different level. And so even though it's an extremely painful thing to, to live through over and over, it, it actually becomes therapeutic knowing that you can hopefully influence things for the better. We love the sport so much that it would be hard-pressed to get me to tell anybody not to go get their skis or their snowboard on and go and experience the mountain. But this is a way for me to continue to uh, heal and help at the same time. Is this kind of what keeps you you out there on the slopes, this campaign and and, and living this this memory and, and helping that along? Yeah, the the campaign's a piece of that. Um, I would say that a bigger piece of it for me is uh, my opportunity to really have my daughter's memory live on uh, with me. My last memories of being with Elise were on the ski slopes, and um, 
while it was extremely difficult for me to start again, those experiences sort of helped me commune with my daughter in a way that I it's hard to describe to somebody uh, unless they've been through something similar. But then in addition to that, uh, we have other young children that uh, ask us, when are we going skiing again? So I want to raise my other kids uh, with the opportunity to do the same thing that we love and not raise them in a scenario where they're in fear of skiing or they're in fear of other things all the time, which is a difficult thing to do. But again, it's healthy if you can make yourself face those fears. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News, and I'm joined by Kelly and Chauncey Johnson. They came to Steamboat Springs to kick off a skier awareness campaign. They want other skiers to learn from the tragedy they experienced when their five-year-old daughter was hit by a snowboarder, killing both. What specifically do you want skiers and snowboarders to do that they're not necessarily doing now? I think that for the most part, skiers do what they can to be to be safe. I think we all go through a phase, I think, in our in our sort of skiing evolution or snowboarding evolution, where for me, when I was young in high school and early college and things like that, I, I always felt like I was invincible. I didn't think that I'd ever get hurt and definitely didn't think that I would hurt anybody else. And so it's one of these sports where you're always pushing yourself. You see the uh, professional athletes on uh, all the different films and things like that, that young athletes are trying to aspire to be. And I'm supportive of that. I think that you need to continue to, to push yourself. But what we're really trying to, to say to people is when you're on a, a ski slope, you're not only responsible for yourself, but you're responsible for everybody else on the mountain. Your conduct can affect you and them. Not unlike defensive driving, when you're on the road, uh, it's your responsibility to do the best you can to stay safe and keep others safe. Colorado law actually puts the responsibility on the uphill skier, but as a matter of habit, uh, you've mentioned all skiers should be accountable and aware of their surroundings, and that includes going on terrain that's the right ability level. So, Kelly, I, I have a difficult question for you. It was reported that you and Elise run an expert run at the ski hill. Did you learn anything which could help other skiers in the future about the kinds of runs you choose to go on or, or bring your family on? Yes, that is a good question. Um, the first thing that you have to realize is that the level of difficulty of runs at a ski area vary from one ski area to another. Um, the ski run that we were on that day was, yes, technically the, the Black Diamond. However, if that exact run was put somewhere in Teton Village or Snowbird or one of the other bigger resorts, it would maybe be a blue so while it was the, the most difficult there for that run, it was definitely not above her, above her um, skiing level. She um, started skiing when she was two years old, and that day we had gotten her her fourth season pass. And just like any skier, you, you want to push yourself. You want to learn. You want to go a little harder than you did last season. She was capable of doing it. And I guess I just, with this awareness, I, I do want to, to talk about making sure that people, as part of their responsibility, don't go on, on runs that they're not ready for. However, um, I will always be an advocate of, of getting better and of pushing yourself to be better. Um, just try and do it safely. Now, the snowboarder who hit you, Kelly, also died that day, as I mentioned. Have you had any contact with his family? Are, are they on board with this campaign? We have tried to to reach out. We have sent a letter to their home that 
the the last address that is, I guess, under their names on the internet. Um, but we have not made contact with them. We w- we would like to 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 make sure that they are okay with this um, campaign and see if they would like to join us. And I understand you avoid using his name in an effort to not uh, demonize him. Yes, we realize that the, his actions that day could have been my my little brother, could have been Chauncey's brother, could have been you know our best friend. It truly was an accident, and I feel that in my heart. I know that. And he was not trying to be suicidal that day. He was not trying to be a murderer that day. And um, we just really want to respect him in this campaign also. Kelly, Chauncey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Kelly and Chauncey Johnson are from Casper, Wyoming. I spoke with them from Steamboat Springs last week, where they kicked off a new skier safety campaign. It's inspired by a collision that killed their daughter and left Kelly Johnson in a coma for several weeks. See the new skier safety video, which will be distributed to ski areas across Colorado at CPRnews.org. Just ahead, asthma is a common disease, but it's also commonly misdiagnosed in adults. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Asthma is a common disease, but a new study finds it's also commonly misdiagnosed. An article in the most recent issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association says a third of adults who are told they have asthma actually don't have the disease. The findings mirror what doctors at National Jewish Health in Denver have seen for years. Dr. David Buther is a pulmonologist at the hospital and joins me now. Dr. Buther, welcome. Thank you for having me. National Jewish is a respiratory hospital, so you treat a lot of folks who come in with asthma diagnosis. You also diagnose a lot of people with asthma. So why is it misdiagnosed so often? Well, asthma is actually a lot more complex than people think. It comes in several different flavors, and it often has very diverse symptoms. And some of the symptoms overlap with a lot of other chronic conditions, like cough, for example. So many reasons to cough, one of them being asthma, it's sometimes hard to disentangle all the different reasons somebody might cough. So, for example, I cough sometimes when I may have acid reflux. Is that one of the issues that some people may be misdiagnosed? Sure. For, for a chronic cough, a lingering cough lasting longer than six weeks, it, 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 the top three causes are asthma, uh, allergies, and sinus conditions, and reflux. And some people have all three. In fact, many of our patients do. What are the potential problems that come up if someone is misdiagnosed? Well, the biggest opportunity is to find the correct diagnosis to get someone feeling better with the least amount of medications. And so if somebody's misdiagnosed with asthma, they they oftentimes take many expensive medications. And they're really pretty safe medications, but they're expensive and they can have some side effects. And some people even feel worse when they take them. Hmm. But there's a pretty large placebo effect with some of these medicines. People want to get better. Uh, They take the medications and they come back and they say, I think I'm a little better. And months can go by before you end up piling up medications and side effects and realizing you might be on on the wrong track. How common is it for a patient with an asthma diagnosis to come to your hospital and then find out they don't have it or or have something else? Well, at National Jewish, one of the the, the kind of core uh, strengths of our organization is the ability to be a solution shop and to, to really find the complete and accurate diagnosis. And so we've looked into this and we've looked back at cases where someone came to our institution uh, from across the country or even locally down the street with asthma. And we've looked to see how many of them actually ended up having asthma after a comprehensive evaluation. And interestingly enough, it was about a third of patients Hmm. that came to our organization with asthma that once we rigorously evaluated them did not have asthma at all. They had some other cause of their symptoms. So the study essentially 
confirms what your hospital is looking at. Yes, we're really happy about this study. It's uh, really well done in a second by this group uh, that really shows that overdiagnosis of asthma is a problem. And of course, underdiagnosis is also a problem. And I think it speaks to this broader issue that we're perhaps not discussing in the healthcare conversation about what's the value of a good, accurate, and complete diagnosis. Is it because doctors aren't spending enough time with their patients? Is, is that a concern? Well, I think asthma is a great model for a diagnosis that's not easy to make. There's not a blood test. It's a combination of symptoms and some fairly simple tests, but the test uh, of breathing called spirometry, which can be done inexpensively in the office, is not performed by a majority of primary care physicians. It's kind of difficult to do. You need to have some expertise in the office. And uh, if you don't do it, you don't get very good at it. You don't get very good data. And people often abandon it. And so then they go with this empiric approach. And certainly one driving factor is the time that you spend with a physician. And I think at National Jewish, the biggest way that I'm spoiled is that we finally get to listen to the patient's story uh, and spend time with them. And oftentimes the patient tells you the diagnosis if you only listen, listen long enough. Let's get some foundational information here. Briefly, what is asthma and, and what medical problems can it cause? So asthma is fundamentally a, a chronic inflammatory disease of the airway. It's not an autoimmune disease, but it could be thought in that same vein in that there's too much of a protective inflammation in the airways. And that inflammation leads to mucus, which is the cough side of things, and also twitchiness and constriction of the airways, which leads to wheezing and shortness of breath. And so when you get tightness in your chest, that's from trapping of air in your chest like an over-distended balloon. Hmm. Uh, You can get shortness of breath. You can get cough and mucus. And then you can get recurring episodes of illness. So it is both chronic daily symptoms some people experience, but also risk of events like going to the ER, being hospitalized. And still nine people every day in the United States die from asthma. So its its, it's burden is, is that. But it's hmm. also perhaps the bigger burden with asthma is lost work, lost school, uh, poor quality of life, and, and that sort of thing. So is the idea then, you were mentioning these tests that can be given at a doctor's office, is it to do them more routinely now that the study is out to maybe uh, lower some of these this misdiagnosis? Yes. For a long time, we've recommended spirometry uh, to make the diagnosis of asthma and to monitor asthma. So in another similar respiratory condition, chronic bronchitis and emphysema, or COPD, it's actually in the guidelines that you cannot make the diagnosis without spirometry. We're not that dogmatic with asthma. Mm. Uh, There are some straightforward cases where people respond very well and spirometry might not be necessary. But the majority of patients should have spirometry, particularly as they get older. Adults can develop asthma at any point in their life. Something like 1 in 200 adults every year develop a new diagnosis of asthma. So uh, as you get later in life, other conditions like reflux, heart disease, uh, cancer, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and as that kind of universe of possibilities gets bigger, spirometry becomes much more important. Does this mean that anyone diagnosed with asthma should get a second opinion? I mean, what's the takeaway for patients out of this? What should they and their doctors do differently? I think the main takeaway for patients is if you're doing really well and somebody's diagnosed you with asthma, you probably have asthma. And, And even if you don't, if you're doing well, it's hard to argue with that. But I think there are a lot of patients. We know even if the best guideline-based therapy is applied to asthma, a third of patients still don't get control. And many more of those patients aren't getting the best care. And so if you're a patient that's still suffering from these recurring bronchitis, chest infections, chronic cough, those sorts of symptoms, uh, you know, the goal with asthma is that you feel normal and that those events do not happen. The goal with asthma is not to withdraw from life or to accept Uh, that you have poor control. And so if things aren't working out for you, you may need a different medication or you may need a different diagnosis. Now, what about people who may be misdiagnosed briefly, but 
are still using this medication, is that a, is that a danger for them? Well, it may not be a big danger. The biggest thing is that these medications are all expensive. There are no generic medications out there, are very few. And, uh, and, and, and I guess the danger is in this study, 2% of those that were overdiagnosed with asthma had a very serious cardiac or other condition. So it's oh. the misdiagnosis of something that might be more severe. I, I caught a case of metastatic lung cancer in a case that was misdiagnosed as asthma. Those are rare conditions. Uh, but they're certainly pretty important. I think the most common thing that we see is the patient feels bad and isn't meeting their goals because they haven't had either a complete diagnosis or an accurate diagnosis. And and lots of kids have asthma. Are, are they being misdiagnosed at the same rate? It seems that way, although there aren't the kind of studies like we're seeing just in this recent paper to support that. Uh, in, in kids, there, there was one small study that maybe wasn't uh, as rigorous that suggests up to 50% of kids might be overdiagnosed hmm. with asthma. And similarly, a lot of us, adults and kids, you know, we get these kind of frequent colds and we blame that we didn't wash our hands or that we were on the airplane. And that may be true, uh, but that may actually be a sign of asthma, recurring cough illness that's prolonged. Uh, people often come to us saying, I think I have something wrong with my immune system. Uh, do I have an immune deficiency? And it turns out no one ever did this simple spirometry test to determine that they have asthma. And many of them are eventually relieved to find out that their immune system is fine. They have a little bit of asthma and a daily medication eliminates their problem. So it seems a little test at the doctor's office could really help uh, this thing forward. Absolutely. Forward. And the more primary care can do this, the better they're going to get at it. And the more likely that uh, the patient's going to get the proper diagnosis from the beginning. Doctor, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. David Buther is a pulmonologist and researcher at National Jewish Health, a respiratory hospital in Denver. We've been talking about asthma and a new study that finds it's commonly misdiagnosed in adults. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. An athlete from Denver has found a new way to get around the rugged trails of Colorado. Trish Downing has relied on a wheelchair since she was injured in 2000 while training on her bicycle. She recently started using a new chair that she says has reintroduced her to the world of hiking. It's called the Grit Freedom Chair, and its makers donated it to her. Trish, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much for having me. As a wheelchair athlete, you've obviously used chairs designed for sports. So what does this wheelchair allow you to do that you couldn't have uh, done before? This wheelchair actually allows me to do things like go camping or uh, go on off-road terrain, you know, hiking on some, you know, more basic trails. Obviously, it's a little bit too wide for maybe some single track, but just allows you to get off-road and do something a little bit out of the ordinary. And we should say this isn't the only all-terrain wheelchair out there. There are some that have motors and others that are manual as well. But this is the only one that uses bike parts that are easily replaceable if they break. And I'm looking at it. It's in the studio. Uh, can you kind of describe for our listeners what it looks like and how it works? Sure. It's um it's a manual wheelchair. So unlike some of the other all-terrain vehicles, they might have some sort of a motor yeah. which requires a battery and intricate parts, but this is looks a lot like a standard everyday wheelchair. The only difference is that instead of having the two caster wheels in the front of the chair, there's actually um, a bar that supports one single wheel. And so that wheel helps you go over the the uneven terrain, whereas the small caster wheels on an everyday wheelchair will sometimes get you stuck. You might flip out of your chair. You know, they might not be able to get through some of the um, bumpy terrain. And then this one doesn't push like a regular wheelchair. You're not using the push rims 
on the chair, you're actually using a lever drive. And so there is a lever on either side and you push those and that's how you propel the chair. So not only is it giving you an opportunity to go some different places, but it's giving you the opportunity to use different muscles um, than you normally would if you were pushing an everyday manual wheelchair. And, of course, you've got the big bike wheels uh, as the main wheels. Right. It has mountain bike tires so that you can go over, you know, some of that terrain. It it was great. The first day I got it, actually, we went to the park. We went to Wash Park. And it was amazing how much easier it was to get through the grass of the park in that chair as opposed to, you know, my everyday chair, which is just not very fast or easy to push through grass. And we post a video at cprnews.org. Uh, from the looks of it, like like you've said, it, it appears to need a lot of arm strength to operate this. Have you found that? Um, yeah, it definitely is. You know, if you're pushing on a flat ground, it's not too bad. But once you start going up a hill, it gets a lot harder. But it also, having the levers helps you, kind of assists you a little bit in getting up the hill. And how much does this this cost as, a, as compared to in a traditional wheelchair? Um, it depends just because, I mean, this is uh, like about, I think, 2500 mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and a regular wheelchair, like the one I'm in today, probably is about 4500 So okay. it's significantly less expensive. And it is, it's low maintenance because everything on it is um, something that you could get at, at a bike shop that a, you know, local bike mechanic could work on. And, you know, so the parts are easily accessible and, and normal price. Whereas when you try to replace something on an everyday wheelchair, a medical piece, yeah. like even just a caster wheel can be ninety dollars. Because it's and considered you're medical, this, it seems, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Every time you add medical, it ups the price about five times. So um this chair is great because you can go replace anything you need to at the bike shop. You've, uh, I've heard, been the only one to ask the company that designed this to make it harder to push the levers, to make it tougher to move. Well, for me, pretty much whenever I do something that's, I don't, I guess I just don't <laughs> like to do recreational activities just for the sake of doing work. recreational activities. <laughs> um, I, I like to use them as fitness opportunities, and so um, I wanted to, I, I wanted to have it to be a little bit more difficult to push so that I could use it for training purposes, just because it does work different muscles. Um, gives you opportunity to do some different things. And so I was looking at it more as a training opportunity than anything else. And, and can I ask, how were you injured? Um, I was injured in 2000. I was hit by a car while I was riding my bike out training. Um, I was a competitive cyclist. And so I was just training in Golden and was hit one day. And you were so you've always been in, in an athletic person, right? Yeah, so I've been uh, doing sports since I was four years old. So it's it's part of who I am and my nature and what I you know look to do every day in my life. And and when you mention to people, I go hiking. What is their reaction? Do you do you use that term? I go hiking. Um, you know, I've probably said that to people <laughs> a time or two, and you know, I, I think that I think more and more people are understanding that a lot of activities mm-hmm. are becoming accessible, right. or that people who are wheelchair users are pushing themselves and their equipment further to do more things. I mean, you know, at the Paralympics this year, there was a a guy in a wheelchair who did a backflip, right. you know, down a ramp. So, I mean, it's it's like nothing's impossible anymore. There's always someone who's going to figure out a way to make it happen. And, and besides hiking, what other uses do you see for this chair? 
Um, you know, just even going on a walk. Like sometimes if you're, you know, a lot of times people don't realize this. When you're in a wheelchair, especially a manual wheelchair, you have to spend a lot of time looking at the ground. Because if you hit any uneven surfaces, if there's a crack in the sidewalk, if, um, you know, the curb cut doesn't smooth out at yeah. the bottom or something, you can easily catch your caster wheels and then you're flipping out of your chair. So one of the things that's nice about this um, Freedom Chair is you know, my husband and I can go on walks together and I don't have to spend my time looking at the ground. I can, you know, push the chair and actually, you know, look at the trees or the flowers or talk to him or not have to pay attention to everything. So I think to me, that's one of the greatest things about it is, is that it's, you know, it's not something you're going to flip yourself out of. And you were given the chair and act as an ambassador for the company that makes them. But we should say you're not getting paid to do that. Uh, I understand you have lent it to a spinal cord rehab project here in Colorado. Right. I've had a couple of opportunities to get the chair to other people in the area who are interested in using it. And uh, one of those places is the Spinal Cord Injury um, Rehab Project. And then um, I also um, run my own camp called Camp Discovery. And we use it at Camp Discovery so the women who come to that camp would have an opportunity to use it also. And uh, that the camp takes place at Rocky Mountain Village, so everything is off-road there. So it's, it was a great opportunity to really get a chance to try it and see how it worked on the uneven terrain. So and, and it's really it's open for anybody kind of in the area to borrow, and that's that's my job as the ambassador is to make sure that if somebody wants to try it out and use it, they can get in contact with me and you know I can give them an opportunity to, to see what it's like. Are there new devices? There are new devices that allow someone who uses a wheelchair to stand upright. Right. Uh, have you tried those? And, and what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, you know, I think that they're probably good for some uses. Um, for me, it's not so good because I have um, some issues with my hip. So for me, I can't really probably go back to a standing and walking type situation. Um, but I think people who have newer injuries. Um, whose bodies haven't taken the beating of, of being a wheelchair user for, you know, nearly 20 years and yeah. sitting for 20 years, whatever. You know, I think a lot of those devices are good. They may or may not be super productive. I mean, like if you want to stand up and walk around the house, that's one thing. But if you need to go to the mall and run in and run out, you know, your chair might be a better way to do it. So, I mean, there's there's walking and then there's, you know, what's actually reasonable for you to get done what you need to get done in a day. Trish, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Trish Downing is a wheelchair athlete. She recently got a new chair specially designed for hiking. You can see a video of the wheelchair at cprnews.org. Coming up, how a former Coloradan got a job singing on passenger trains. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Controlling something you can't always control is Denver artist Keith D'Angelo's obsession. He calls himself a fire sculptor. He reveals a new work this week at the Fire Arts Festival in Breckenridge. It's called Operation of Creation and is inspired by the Hindu and Buddhist spiritual symbol, the mandala. CPR's Ryan Warner spoke with D'Angelo last year. Keith, welcome to the program. Thank you. How did you get interested in, in fire art? And have you been burned? Um, I have been burned. I feel like I burn myself nearly every time I'm playing with the fire art, to be honest, but um, nothing too serious, knock on wood. But um, I've been going to a, a Burning Man since it's a festival in Nevada, Yo. Uh, since uh, 
2004 and uh, they do a lot of fire sculpture out there and it really just caught my eye intrigued me caught my heart really I think that working with fire um, being that it's intangible but still as you put it you know trying to control something that's not so easily controlled um, is just you know it just speaks to me and then being able to kind of convey my feelings through this intangible medium it's just really fun you have to contend, I imagine, with nature as well, because if these are outdoor pieces, and one, I suppose, if they're really big, you'd hope that they would be outdoors. You've got rain, you've got wind. Uh, these are variables you can't control as an artist. Yeah, absolutely. And um, with my with my sculptures being that they're uh, the fuel is propane, the way that they can kind of dance in the wind, and that it's always changing, and there's this this dynamic of the fuel, the wind, uh, you know, the rain. I've had times when I've been trying to show a piece, and it's so windy that you simply can't show it, and then you're just kind of standing around waiting for the wind to die down. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of uncertainty, which is, you know, it's a, it's a great dynamic. Were you fascinated with fire as a kid? I mean, it sounds like you discovered fire maybe a bit later in life as an art form, but would you say the fascination was, was older than that? I, I would say so. Yeah, definitely. I think there was a time I was maybe seven or eight years old and I got in some trouble because me and a couple of friends were lighting spray paint cans on fire and making little blow torches in my garage about two feet away from a propane tank. And uh, Oh, goodness. It's, it's yeah. a wonder you're here right now. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty lucky. Um, my dad was, uh, was sure to make sure that that wasn't going to happen again. But um, I guess you could say I have been into it for a while. Do people have judgments when you tell them you're a fire artist? In other words, I wonder if they make a leap and say, oh, he's a pyro or something. I haven't come across that so much. I think for me, you know, being that fire is my medium, my sculptures aren't really meant to be seen unless they are on fire. So sometimes I feel like people kind of look at it and are like, oh, yeah, nice art or something like that. You know what I mean? So um, I don't know about being dubbed a pyro. I haven't heard it, but maybe people think so. <laughs> okay, know. maybe people don't think it. I'm the only one who said it. Gosh, now I feel like a jerk. <laughs> no, not at all. What would you like to do with fire that you haven't? Bigger. Bigger. Bigger, yeah. Just, I love just watching the flame. So the more flame, the better. Have you found ways to get more flame? In other words, is that just a question of burning more fuel or are there other variables involved? Um, there are some other variables involved. I've seen some really cool pieces um, with mixing, you know, air and oxygen in with propane to create more of like a like a jet type of like really powerful flame, and then also mixing in some chemicals to give different colors and flames. But oh, that's interesting! Different colors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think uh, magnesium is one of them, and you can get like powdered magnesium. And um, there's a couple different ways that you can add it to the fuel. Um, I haven't started quite at experimenting with that, but I've seen it, and it's 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 really cool. But as as far as for my sculpture, I just turn it up, turn it up, turn it up, more turn, fuel, more fuel. It strikes me that this is part art and part engineering as well. And have you had to learn a good deal of science to make this work, or just of engineering in general? I wouldn't say so much. My pieces are, are really simp- simplistic. You know, that's kind of something uh, that's just, I guess, my way of creating. 
What are these fire festivals like? Is it just fire sculpture? What other kind of fire artists attend? These fire sculpt uh, festivals are great. We have um, all different types of fire performers, fire breathers, people dancing with fire in different ways, um, musical fire instruments. Um, oh, there, wow. There's a total... There's a, there's a plethora of different ways of um, working with fire in some sort of artistic fashion. So they're really neat, really, really pretty cool. You mostly work in uh, propane and steel. I'm curious, uh, when you're at these fire arts festivals, what other types of sculptures are out there? I think that steel, stainless steel, is the most popular, but also I have some friends around the state that make really cool giant sculptures out of wood as well and then light them on fire and we watch them burn down to the ground. So that's also really powerful to create something just to burn down into nothing. So that's another great medium to work with fire in. Interesting, yeah, something that's so ephemeral. Thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Keith D'Angelo is a fire sculptor living in Denver. You can see his work at the Fire Arts Festival in Breckenridge starting Thursday. He spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner last year. He has a non-fire art project in Aspen as well called Shoot Portraits, Not People. Well, there's a new musical feature coming to some long-distance passenger trains in the U.S., and her name is Gigi Love. Ansel Muir and Theodore Love this valley to the core Deny a canyon and half dome Where the Awanichi made their home Oh, Yosemite I'll keep your beauty close to me That's her song, Yosemite Gold. The National Park Service and Amtrak have teamed up with the former Coloradan to make her the first Trails and Rails troubadour. Gigi Love joins me by phone from her home in Utah. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Hey, thanks, Nathan. Nice to be on the show. I gather you'll be singing songs about the national parks, but what exactly is the job description for Trails and Rails troubadour? Well, I'm kind of breaking new ground here, and I, the National Park Service has been so kind to allow me to come on the trains and sing my songs and kind of set the template for what this job is going to be. Um, I'll be performing about three times a day on each train that I'm on, in the bar, in the parlor car, and in the observation car. And then I'll be visiting and meeting people on the train and listening to their stories and talking about the national parks. So where will you be going over this next year as a troubadour? Well, I have three main trips planned. One is on the um, Sunset Limited. From I'm going to go from Tucson to New Orleans and then back to Tucson. Um, then I'm going to do the um, Empire Builder, which is a Glacier to Seattle and back. And I'm also going to do the, Cal- the Coast Starlight, which is L.A. to Seattle. And I'm going to do the Zephyr, Salt Lake to Denver, then up to Rocky Mountain. The California Zephyr, that's right, that stops in Denver twice daily. Uh, uh-huh, and it's like a 15-hour trip from Salt Lake. And that's the question I have. You're traveling by train uh, quite a bit. Is, is, is that something you're used to? Are you excited for that? I'm really excited. My first train ride was actually last August on the Coast Starlight, and I loved it. I mean, the people on the train are so interesting. They're from all over the world and all over the U.S. Um, I was able to get off the train in Klamath Falls and go to Crater Lake National Park, uh, 
where I wrote the song Coast Starlight to Crater Lake. Um, and just, it's really an adventure. And I mean, it's a little tight. Even the first class sleeper cars are, they're super cozy, but you know, they're little. So did, just me and my husband and all of our instruments. And all your gear. <laughs> uh, did you apply yeah. for this position or, or how did this come about? Well, it was all really synchronistic. Um, it was kind of like build it and they will come. Huh. Um, I had this idea to write songs for the national parks when I wrote Yosemite Gold about 10 years ago. And the park service, you know, we presented it to the National Park Foundation and they weren't really interested in partnering with an, an individual artist. And so I just went ahead and did the project and recorded the songs. And the National Park Service was at the Grand Canyon um, and Amtrak and Trails and Rails director on August 25th, which was the centennial. And they heard me singing in the Bright Angel Lounge and they loved the idea. They loved the songs and they invited me to go on the train the next week and asked me if that would be something I would like to do. And we spoke to Jim uh, Majolka, the national coordinator for the Trails and Rails program, and he said it really was a chance meeting. Here's a clip. We thought, well, this is a nice fit. She has some great songs about the national parks. And because we were in the midst of the centennial and involved in the national park at Grand Canyon, that this is sort of a good idea. This was a good idea, he said. Was it really that chance of a meeting? <laughs> It really was. We were just totally there opening up for my friend, Mike Beck, who plays at the Bright Angel Bar every year, multiple times a year. And there was about a party of nine people sitting at the bar and Jim and Eric Smith from um, Amtrak in L.A. They were just all there. And it was a divine kind of moment where, like, things lined up without me, you know, better than I could have done it myself. (laughs) Now, Gigi Love, you've written 11 songs about the national parks. What inspired you to do that? Well, I think with all the issues that are arising now with climate and fossil fuels and pollution, clean water, clean air, our national parks are really a gauge to show us what's going on in our environment. The Grand Canyon is one of my most favorite places in the world. And to go there five times this last year and three out of those five times, see it filled with haze and see the vistas completely diminished. It just broke my heart. And I just realized that my way to bring awareness to the national parks and to um, the environment was to write these songs and sing them to grassroots Americans across the nation and, and find out why people love the parks and, and even try to educate people on what we can do to help preserve the parks and not just the parks, but to bring more awareness to clean air and clean water to our country. And I understand it's not just the Western parks that you write about. Uh, for the next park song you, you, you're doing, you traveled across the country to the East Coast. Yes, Acadia National Park. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I well wanna... Acadia and Shenandoah. And Shenandoah. But let's, let's talk about Acadia National Park. You were there in 2015, and, and you had an intention of writing a song. Tell me about that song. Well, that was the first time I actually showed up in a park with the intention to write a song that was going to go on the album. And my husband, Peter Nicholson, and I, we just said, well, what can we do in three or four days to really experience this park? So we went on the carriage roads. We rode our bikes all around the carriage roads. And we did as many um, day hikes as we could. 
And then I performed in the campgrounds on Mount Desert Isle. I performed in three campgrounds and got to meet the people there. And of course, going to the visitor center, learning about the history of the park, talking to the park rangers, asking them what their favorite thing of Acadia is, what their favorite aspect of the park, and really, really learning about how these parks were created. And you and you incorporate that all into this song. I want to listen to a bit of Blueberry Kisses in Acadia. In the land of Edna, St. Vincent, Malay. I looked around from the top of Mount Batty where she did gaze. Out to Cadillac Mountain across Penobscot Bay. Goodbye Camden Hills, I'm going to Acadia today. Your songs pick out notable places in each park. Uh, are there some spots that you wanted to write about but found it too difficult to find words that rhymed? Well, I did feel that way because some of the parks are just so vast and so um, there's so many spots that you could just write a song very cliche and name all these places. And that's what I was trying not to do was name things without actually having an emotion and an experience connected to it. So I really had to pick the places and that called to me, like spiritually, where I wanted to um, connect. And then um, magically, the words would just come. And the song, you know, I did several versions of each song before I finally got the right one, for sure. Now, is there any pay for being a troubadour? Well, we get our trip paid for, and we get our expenses covered while we're on the train and in a turnaround city, and that's about it. Everything else is all on my own. I mean, we can sell CDs on the train and promote, you know, the website and the music. We can film videos, and I'm not just a Trails and Rails volunteer, but I'm actually a volunteer in the park as well, so I will be performing in the national parks and um, looking at having all of my CDs available in at least the 11 national parks that are on the album. And how do people respond to you when you're singing on the train? They are awesome. They're just like um, really, really taken at first. Like, whoa, somebody's entertaining us. And they kind of act like it's a really nice treat to have someone there. Um, usually the internet's not very good on the train in different spots, especially when you're going through the Cascades and the mountains and people, um, are kind of bored. So, (laughs) so I get, I get a captive audience. Literally, I get a hundred people in this car that, um, you know, they get to listen to me. Now, is this a gig for life or will there be other train and trail troubadours (laughs) in the future? You're going to step aside or something? Gosh, I'm hoping there will be other trails and rails troubadours. I hope that. You know, the the name Troubadour came from the Connecticut State Troubadour. I went to the uh, Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, and I, I heard that c- certain states have a state troubadour. And so when we were thinking of the name for this and talking with Jim, we were like, what about a Trails and Rails Troubadour? And it would be really neat if someone could carry the torch of this musical, um, you know, position and bring back this Americana grassroots way to connect with people through stories and songs. And that is you, Gigi. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess thank, I am that person. Right thanks now. so much for joining us, Gigi. You're G- welcome. Thanks, Nathan. Gigi Love is the official songstress of the rails and the trails. She'll be singing about the national parks, in the parks, and on the trains traveling to the parks. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. Up Trail Ridge Road, a bugling out. It's a high.